Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Growth Everywhere, where we interview entrepreneurs and bring you business and personal growth tips. Today, we have Finnegan Faldi. Did I pronounce that correct? You did. All right. Finnegan Faldi from True Effect. And Finnegan actually has over 20 years of senior management experience in both startups and in uh, at public technology companies. Um, he was at Yahoo as head of broadband and also served as chief operating officer at Datalogix. Finnegan, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah. Um, So yeah, why don't we start off with your background first and then we'll go from there. So I, uh, like you said, I, uh, I've been in the internet space um, for, uh, you know, uh, probably about uh, 16 years. Um, Had done a couple of early startups and then I, um, my first jumping into a public company was I, I ran sales and business development and did the turnaround at uh, Net Zero, which became United Online. And, uh, uh, and sorry. <laughs> no worries. And, sorry. Anyways, and I did that. And then I did a, a payments company, of which I built an online payment system, a company called Solidus Networks. And then I moved on to Yahoo, where I was responsible for their global broadband business. And um, we grew that. It was about uh, when I left there. It was about a four hundred fifty million dollar business. And then I also there ran the search affiliate business globally, partnership network, and the North American mobile business. After that, I went to Data Logics as chief operating officer, and stayed for a year. Uh, when I had the opportunity to jump to True Effect with a great technology and the basis for a great team, I couldn't resist, and we've had a great run for the last two years. Wow, really impressive background. And you know, the tr- why don't we talk a little bit about about True Effect first? You know, what's what's True Effect all about? Can you talk about the company? Sure. So True Effect is um, a uh, patented technology where we focus on first party data. We are a uh, performance platform. Foundationally, we're an, a tier one certified ad server. So your other tier one certified ad servers are like a MediaPlex, DoubleClick, and Atlas, and then True Effect. We, are, um, we have two flavors of our technology. One is a self-service platform and one is a managed service platform. The self-service platform where um, lots of companies will use the technology and run the system themselves, straight enterprise SaaS software. Um, companies like that would be like in Match.com or Ancestry.com, um, Southwest Airlines. Um, and then we have a managed service side of that business where we help the company use the platform. And um, company clients like that of ours are like a charter communications, the second largest cable company in the country. And so we have um, probably 70 clients, um, both managed and self-serve. Got it. Okay. So I I guess, you know, let's say I'm a match.com and, you know, I'm thinking about switching over, you know, or I'm switching over, I'm thinking about switching over to true effect. I mean, what are the, what are the main benefits, you know, to, to someone that doesn't, have a lot of experience, uh, you know, in, in this area. Sure, that's because we have to answer that on all our sales calls. The benefits are is that pretty much any type of performance marketer has data assets because they're doing performance marketing. They have a house file, CRM file, or they want to build. The way legacy wise, the way things have been served and retargeted is through third party companies. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's coming not from your domain, but through a, a, another company and through their servers. When companies do that, they are they're in control of their data. 
their data is controlled, their, their data is shared, and their data is also open on the web. With True Effect, what we wanted to do is we said for performance marketers, and that's who we work with, and, and we, want, we put our software within their domain. The company then has active data, active first-party data. Well, when, that, when they're retargeting or serving from that domain – is then it is it is seen as first party data out on the web as well whereas in the data brokerage world or through third parties it is first party data from the marketer side but when it hits the open web it's seen as third party data because it's going through somebody else so true effect we allow marketers to basically activate and control their data the uh, next advantage is when they actually are serving or retargeting or messaging consumers out on the web or prospects or whoever it is that data cannot be read or interpreted by other third parties because it's a first-party idea, first-party cookie. And then the next advantage is – so many devices and browsers don't accept third-party cookies, and third-party cookies delete. Our software creates first-party IDs, and you can call them cookies, IDs, whatever you want, fingerprint. We create – our software creates that for the marketer. When that is out on the web, that cookie or ID lasts for about 18 months, and every time it comes back to the person's website, it gets rewritten, and so it starts the clock again. No devices are blocked first-party cookies because it's seen as pure data. It's, it's pure data, marketer's data. It's coming from the marketer. They know what it is. And so those advantages get lend – to the marketer saying, okay, I've activated my own data. I'm controlling my data now. Now the technology allows things is because we're in the first party, our technology allows a marketer to look at a CRM, to look at their CRM file or their house file history prior to making ad decisioning calls, whether it's a retargeting or serving ad. In the third party, you can't look at your um, you can't look at your CRM file prior to making ad decisioning calls. It comes down to the fact of Many people might have you know, a checking account. I, I have a checking account at Bank of America. Um, they're not a client of ours. But every time I go and maybe move money or check my account, when I go to a publisher, I get hit with open a, open a Bank of America checking account because they don't know that, I, that I'm actually Finn Faldi who has a, has a checking account. So one of the advantages is really to – that we allow – um, marketers to dedupe through the third-party cookies and understand that Eric, we might have 50 third-party cookies, but when we see Eric, we only see one individual cookie. It's basically allowing the marketer to see the trees and not the forest. Got it. Okay. okay. I like that. And, you know, I'm an internet marketer myself. I'm just wondering how come something like this, you know, it seems like it's higher quality. It seems like it's more secure. How come there aren't more people doing this? Well, so... Great question. Um, technology has been around for 10 years. Um, and I, um, you know, I came here two years ago excited because I understand the third party. I worked at a data broker. I worked at Yahoo. I worked at United Online. I understand the whole value of third party cookies. But what we've done is say third party cookies and third party data has huge value, but for certain types of marketers. Marketers who aren't worried about a house file or a CRM file, think of a ketchup maker or think of a big 
brand where you're just trying to reach no matter what. You might reach Eric 50 times, but that's fine because you're just trying to cast your net across the web as wide as you can. What we've done is said, okay, there's another type of marketer. That marketer wants to basically make sure that their messaging to just um, their people within their house file and be able to suppress all those people in their house file against third-party cookies when they're prospecting. So it becomes much more efficient. We see most of our clients end up spending less money as soon as they start using our system. But their KPIs and attributable conversions usually go up by about 25 to 35%. Wow. Okay, well, that's that's the smoking gun right there. I like that. You said 25 to 35%, right? Yes. Okay, cool. So why don't we talk a little bit about uh, you know your, your revenues today and you, know, you, t- you alluded to your growth rate a little before we started the call. So um, Inc. 500, um, which we're, 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 we're thrilled being again this year, uh, moving up a couple notches. Um, and Forbes had us in 2013 at $21 million. And I can say they never get it exactly right, but that's right around the pin. Okay. Um, and that was um, – we had a slow growth year the year I came on board because we got rid of some wrong revenue mm-hmm. and we had to build up. And we were about 15 the year before that, so still about 40% growth. Mm-hmm. But it was purposely slow, and this year we will grow about 60 to 70%. And I think next year, as we're putting our straw man together, um, I would be surprised if we're anything less than 60 or 70% growth next year. Wow. Because as you said, is our, our technology is used now today in 200 countries across the world now. Mm-hmm. Now, all of our clients are domiciled here in the US, but, they, but they are, most of them are global clients. And so our ads are retargeted, served, or messaged in over 200 countries. Okay, you know, sixty to seventy percent growth is definitely nothing, nothing to scoff at. So, you know, what what are, what's the main driver of that growth? Well, the main driver this year, believe it or not, we just added our second salesperson 70, 70 days ago. Wow. Yes. So, um, is our number one salesperson for the first six months of this year was client referrals. Okay. And which is a great way, you know, when your client says, "Hey, I know this person in my similar job at this other company." I've been telling he or she that this is a great technology and is helping us in a big way. You know, that's been great. What I'm seeing now is that the market, because of the issues with third party cookie deletion and, and the inaccuracies of measurement of third party data, is that performance marketers are, or anybody that considers themselves performance marketers, are now saying two things. One, I want to control all my data. I I, I don't want to have to give it to a data broker. I don't want to lose control when I'm messaging on the web. That's great. So we look at those as the early adopters and the the fast follower sort of complex marketers. Um, And I think those are the smallest groups. I mean, the legacy is always going to be the biggest. But those two groups are really good for us. And we see a lot of companies in the middle part of the market that have sort of in-house agencies or pick the individually, they pick different pieces of their stack are looking at this and saying, this is a great alternative. They're kind of Switzerland and we have, we, we, you know, we can service them in in a, in a terrific way. We have 68 great, really smart people here at the company and you know, it's, um, it's growing pretty quickly. Great. 
Awesome. Uh, I'll have to check out the platform afterwards. Um, so you know, let's let's talk about your your twenty years of senior management experience. I mean, you've you've obviously you've been through a lot. You've seen a lot. So first part would be, you know, what are what are some management lessons you can share from being at a public company that you think startups can learn from? So one of the things I've learned at being at a public company um, in in very senior roles is that you know they're ninety day sprints. I mean, it, it just is. You have a public company. Your CEO has to report numbers every 90 days. So you pretty much can't take your foot off the accelerator. Maybe the first or second day of the quarter or the last day of the quarter. But other than that, you're sprinting to the next 90 days. Now, you've got to balance that with what's my strategic plan and vision for you know out a year or 18 months. What I've found with companies like ours we're, we have the advantage of being private. So we have the advantage of basically being able to um, invest. We have the advantage of being able to uh, uh, take our time, trial and error with certain things. But one of the things that we can really do is and learn from these experiences is that you've got to keep on pressing. You know, you've got to still balance that. It's we're not in 90 day sprints. We're in one day sprints. You know, we've got to keep on pressing the accelerator, but we can be scrappy. And, you know, I I'd still said the best public companies are the ones that maintain that scrappiness feel. And there's some great companies out there, especially, you know, we moved from the Silicon Valley to Colorado. And there are some just really well-run public companies that maintain that scrappiness of, from when they were private. Got it. Okay. So, you know, reversing that question a little bit, you know, what, what are some management lessons you learned from being at a startup that you think public companies can learn from? Um, I think one of the things at public companies that I learned is that it's okay to say even we spent six weeks on something, it's not working, we got to stop. Um, it's okay to say, look, we made a mistake, we've got, we've got to shift. Because I think my experience at times is you put a plan, you put a budget in place, probably in you know October for the following year. You get somewhere in May and you've had a lot of investment, a lot of resources going into something. It's sometimes you're like, you know what, we're going to push through this anyways, rather than just reel it back. Because when you're, when you're private, you know you have starts and stops. Every private company does, and you know it's it's not so much a pivot; it's sort of a zig and a zag. And I think sometimes in public companies, you get sort of no one wants to, you know, raise the flag and say, look, we made a mistake before we go into deeper. Let's let's stop pivot and and go a little bit the other way. Got it. OK, perfect. And I think that's that's very that's a very valid lesson. Um, you know, wh- what stands out to me also is that, you know, you've you've had all these different roles. You know, you've been head of sales, head of broadband, and then now, you you know, you've you've been placed into this CEO role. So. What's what's some advice you'd have for people that are that are placed into a CEO role where you know I guess what are some mistakes you made during your transition? Well, the the, the, the first thing you have to realize and, and it's hindsight's always 2020 is that you're going to make more mistakes than you're going to get things right early on. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing is I would say is that you got you got to listen um because even though at the end of the day you're the final decision maker on any jump ball or anything, um, make sure that you're, you're listening to people that are actually 
smarter than you in certain disciplines. And the, um, the definite thing I've always followed, and I try to get my team to follow it here, is when we hire, the last question should be, is if you're hiring somebody to be on your team, if, if it were you and he or she, if you would get that role over them, they're probably not the right person, meaning that you need to hire above you. Okay. I forgot who said that. Who's the one that – I think it was Jeff Bezos that says you, you always got to set the bar higher, right? You, you, got, you always have to hire someone smarter than you. Um, what's – I guess – go ahead. I, I was saying I don't I, – I would say that out of all the people that I've hired um, in you know really skilled roles is there's no way I would ever – if it were me and them for that job, there's no way I'd ever get the job. Got it. Okay. Do you have any specific hiring tactics that can help you pretty much – pretty much know that they're they're you know more qualified than you are anything you could any practical advice you can share with the audience well people's history you know history i i'm a big believer in history not just in work but in lots of things history tends to repeat itself and finding people that are successful um who have been successful and they've been successful because they've been in positions where the role was they weren't just taking over you know keeping the car going straight, they actually fixed something or they created something or they built something is for smaller companies like us. We need people like that because there's a level of roll your sleeves up and everything. And that's not to say that get hiring somebody to keep a car going straight is a bad thing for certain types of jobs. But we like people that, you know, are hungry and that they know what they're getting themselves into. I mean, going from a public company even though you have huge stress, huge demands, is it's a change when you roll up your sleeves. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you know, continuing on the you know continuing on the, the CEO topic. I mean, you know, can you tell us about one big struggle you faced after taking over as CEO and what you learned from it? I think that you can't take your foot off. Um, there's, there's a lot of different pieces of the business that you have to maintain. And even if you're a GM or running a big part of an organization, I don't think you appreciate all the other pieces that go into an organization. Um, you know, everything from keeping your ear to the ground on culture, keeping your ear to the ground on communicating to employees what's going on. Um, one of the pieces I, I got a feedback was and it was really good was look it's great to cheer and be the you know the chief cheerleader you know getting people excited all that but also be honest with your team hey we had a bad week or something bad happened and look we're all in this together we're going to get through it rather than not not ever bringing that up and i think that i have learned that even though you want to hide or protect your employees from things that they shouldn't have to get stressed out about. There is something about the trust and bringing them closer when you kind of open up to them. And I learned that because I didn't do that. And I got feedback in 360s that that would be something that I should work on. And it's been something I've tried to focus on. Okay. And, you know, when you, that's, you, know, when you talk about transparency, it's do you ever see that? Do you ever see that possibly backfiring? I mean, if you have 
let's say if you have like you know one negative month and you have another even worse month where you're just in the red even more it's like and then you have to lay some people off it's it's like you know that's a total morale killer so what do you do in, in that scenario are you still are you still 100 transparent well fortunately we haven't been in that position i, I don't I, I don't plan on being in that but <laughs> but 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 your question's a good one is that there is, there is, there is, there is a soft line to the level of transparency, and that one of the things you want to make sure is that even when things you might be going to a fundraise or you, like you said, you might have had a bad month, or one of your clients is kind of saying, "Well, we may not," you know, and they're one of the big clients or something like that, is you want to balance the fact that you don't want to worry people. But you also want to let them know is like, hey, we've got to hit it double hard right now or we've got to focus on this client. We've got to focus on getting this product release done because it's really critical to a number of sales we have. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fair enough. I think no. I, I think it's, that's completely right. There has to be some kind of soft line, like you said. And you, you know, you talked a little bit about 360. So it, that's something I've heard a lot, but I've never seen too much too much literature on, on 360. So how do those work? And you know, if someone in the audience wants to get that started for their business, how do they go about doing it? So I mean, you you can pretty much set up a 360 as you want. And the way we do them here is that once a year, you have your direct reports. You know, give a write up on you. Um, and you give a direct write up on your direct reports and we do, we follow like five or six questions about the person. Then you pick a couple people, not in your organization, but from around the company, maybe two or three to give you a review as well. You keep everything anonymous. That's very, it's now you'll, you, you can pretty much start to see, you'll, you'll know who's writing what, um, and some companies choose to have anonymous. Some companies don't. Um, we've tried it anonymous, but I, we've actually gotten feedback that people are like, you kind of knew what they were writing anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I would just say that what it does is it kind of brings things out in the open that you thought might not have thought of a big deal or it kind of you know puts some light on one of the shadows you're, you haven't been paying attention to. Okay. Fair enough. And, you know, would you guys run these 360s, you know, come up with a list of questions and send them out in like a Google survey or something very simple like that? No, we, we created the we created the questions and they ba- they were based on our our core values for okay. the company. Got it. Okay. And, you know, one thing I always hear from CEOs and, you know, this is one thing that, that kind of fascinates me. True or false, would you agree or disagree with this? CEOs are supposed to spend, you know, 25 to 33% of their time recruiting. I agree 100%. My team will tell you that um, in every place I've always been is that anybody that's a manager better be better be spending at least 10% of their time during the week recruiting or 5%. But I would say that I'm always recruiting. And one of the things that drives me crazy is when I'll ask somebody, I'll say, you know, have you talked to so-and-so or I made an introduction? Did you talk to him? Well, I don't have any roles open. That's when you want to recruit. You want to recruit people when you actually don't have anything to give them because the fact is you want to get them excited about your company so that you've got a bench there. You've got them excited to the point where it flips, where they're checking in and saying, hey, I'm starting to follow your company. Hey, let me know if there's anything that opens because people's lives change. You know, Someone's spouse or partner or significant other may say I'm moving and they're going to move with them. Or someone may say, you know what? 
we're going to have one, one of the two of us, we're going to go to a single income family or I'm going back to school or you know what? I, I need to take time off and we've had all of it. But the fact is, is that when I got here, we never, we didn't have any bench strength in terms of like recruiting. Now I basically, I would say I, I, I know a number of people that could fill in for the people here because you never know when you're going to, when that person who you really like says, I'm really excited at my job, but heck, you, you know, something may change over there and all of a sudden there's a superstar available. You don't want to have to start the clock. You want to say, Hey, look, let me tell you everything that's been going on. And you, you, you can, I'm convinced you can always find somebody that makes your company better. You can always find a place in your organization if they make your company better. I agree. And what's, I mean, in terms of recruiting, you know, what's working for you and, you know, are you going to events? Are you speaking? What's, what's working for you nowadays? It's, it is, it's your network. Um, I love to recruit, um, people that I've worked with over, you know, time because they have history and I've seen them and I've usually been humbled by how good they are. I like to recruit people from companies that I may have competed against. And I knew that they were much more talented than me or, you know, or I've just, you know, I've heard from clients saying this person's really good, a good marker or this person's a great product person or this person's a great salesperson. I mean, one of, one of the best ways to get salespeople is it, it, ask the people that aren't becoming clients of yours. Who's selling to you? Who's closing? Go get them. Love it. Cool. And no, that, that, that's super helpful. Maybe we need to do another talk sometime on just, you know, straight up recruiting. I'd love to hear a little more. It sounds like you have it down. Uh, anyway, continuing on here, uh, final few questions from my side, you know, what's one piece of advice you'd give to your 25 year old self? Be patient because at 25, I remember I was all worried about what the next role was. And if I could go back, I probably would have taken some more siloed roles just to um, hone certain skill sets. Like I never had a product management role. I think that would have been really helpful for me. I had a straight marketing role. Like all I did was marketing. I think that would have been really helpful for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I think that one of those things that I, that I tell people is that, you know, rotate yourself through different disciplines because the thing you always want to be able to do is that if you're going to, if you're, if you're in sales and you're going to sit with a marketer someday, it, it really helps you to say, I was there at one point I did marketing. Or if you're going to sit with a great product person, if you've never done any product work or product management or, you know, product marketing, it's really hard to put your to to to, to gain the trust of, of someone who's doing that day in and day out. So I, I would say my my advice to me would be be patient, round your skill set with some different roles, just so that you know what it's like to walk a day in someone's shoes. Got it. And it still seems like it's worked out pretty well for you, though. You know, you talk about being patient, but you've you know you've done sales, you've done uh, you've become a head of head of broadband. It seems like you've jumped around these these, these other roles, um, and you're saying you're still saying at this point you would have slowed down a little bit more. Well, I, I here's the thing is is I tell everybody at our company, everybody's in sales. Mm-hmm. You have anybody in your company that says they're not in sales, they don't they don't they don't know your product. Because you never know when you're sitting on a plane, you're going to be sitting on a bus, sitting on a train, at a dinner party or something. 
you need to be able to sell your company's product no matter what your job is within that company. Um, I, you know, the global broadband business for Yahoo was a great business that had some struggles and we came in and we turned, we, we doubled the business in four years and grew the margins. And I had, it wasn't because of just me by any chance. It was because we had a team, great team all around the world and we, we put the right people in the right roles to be successful. But, um, you know, everybody on that team, whether they were in engineering, my head of engineering, my head of product or anything, they were all salespeople at the same time and they were marketing people too. You always say, you're always a salesman and always a marketer. Totally agree. And moving on to the next question, what's one productivity hack you can share with the audience? Productivity hack? Yep. So give me an example. <clears throat> give you an example. So, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I keep my phone really far away. So when the alarm goes off, I have to get up and I'll switch the lights on. That way I'm up for sure. So that's an example. <laughs> okay. That is a good one. Productivity hack for me is that I need to be – I need to get up in the morning because I don't want – if there's any news or any communication – I don't want my clients, prospects, or partners ever sending me one first earlier in the morning than I'm going to send them one because I want them to know that I'm always thinking about them. And I tell my team, over-communicate. When you're not in communication, some people say, well, that's just a happy client. Out of sight, out of mind. When you have five minutes, and everybody does, whether they're waiting for an airplane, waiting for a train, sitting on a bus, use that time to reach out to somebody, understand like, you know, something they're excited, that's something you've had small talk with them at a table on, where they go to college, what sport do they like? Hey, I just saw the score. Congratulations on your team. Those are the little things that makes them know that you've listened to them. And so use all those extra minutes to make sure that people know that you've listened to them when, when you've had a chance to get to know them. Okay. I like it. Yeah, it is. I think you alluded to it earlier. It's all about listening to people. And I, I like that. The Taking the extra five minutes, I think that's a perfect hack. And I think I'm going to steal it. So thank you. Um, final question from my side. Uh, what's one must-read book you'd recommend to the audience? Um, the, um, Frank, the Kobe book on the habits of highly successful people. Okay. I mean, I think it's uh, I, the seven – Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. I don't, um, I don't have it in front of me, but I'm sorry, it's on the tip of my tongue. But it's Stephen Covey's book. Got it. I, is it highly successful or highly effective? I forget now. It's it's successful or effective, but any anyhow, you know the book I'm talking about. Yeah. It's, it's sort of a must read because it, it to me it runs a self awareness test on you. Like it, it doesn't mean those seven habits or any five habits or three habits are going to be help make anybody he or she successful mm -hmm. it you think about what habits you are doing a good job at and what habits you need to improve upon and i'd always say to anybody is that as soon as you think you've mastered something move the goalpost got it okay so you know I'll, I'll i'll make sure to put the book in the in the notes for everyone but i think you know that is that's definitely a great book um but everyone this is finnegan faldi from true effect thanks so much for taking the time out of your busy day to join us thank you